So good to be here this morning. Amen? Why don't you high-five somebody around you and say, you look good, okay? Just un- unusual for you, but you do look good. Amen. So thankful for all of you here this morning. Uh, we got a, a big service planned and a baptism uh, to follow, so um, I want to jump right into this morning. And uh, we are on our second message of a, of a new series we started called Edit. And um, for those of you that were not here last week, uh, let me just kind of recap that. We talked about a big, deep topic called on shame. And um, a lot of times, you know, we don't address it specifically, but we spent a whole a whole a weekend talking about it. And um, we basically focused on two big things, that you cannot rid yourself of shame by just being religious, that, um, you know, just coming to church or giving to a church or serving a church or whatever around a church does not rid us of shame. And then the second thing we talked about was you cannot retire your shame. Uh, like you just can't spend a whole bunch of years and those years add up and add up and eventually the shame leaves. No, but we talked about having to turn that over uh, to Christ who does some really great things in our lives. And he um, takes that shame and he rids it um, instantly, completely, and freely. And so that's kind of where uh, we left that last week. And so Today, I'm going to take, take us to a passage of Scripture that is familiar to all of us. If you've been in church for any length of time, uh, this, this is an enormous story, and we're just going to take a Polaroid from it and uh, try to draw some, some good stuff from it. But the character, the main character, is one of my favorite uh, characters of all time in the, in the Bible. And so I'm going to use this passage and this individual to talk about editing our decisions editing our decisions. Uh, We are certainly a people and a culture of decision-making, whether it's on your job, your career, your marriage, uh, your parenting, what you're going to have for lunch. uh, We are constantly making choices. And this is is an important part of who we are. Um, The Bible gives us a lot of insight when it comes to things that can help us be better at it, uh, specifically being people of, of, of wisdom, to have, to have a, a life that is wise. And so he even tells us, listen, if you're not wise, just ask me for it, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you wisdom. And so it's very important to God that we're making decisions that are good and that are righteous and that are reflective of a person following Jesus. And he also knows, this is a principle of life, that good decisions produce uh, good consequence. And so um, the better we are at making good decisions, uh, life tends to play out better for us in those ways. And so I'm going to take us to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to use a lot of First and Second Samuel, but I kind of want to tell you where, where we are in, in this story playing out. This is the life of David, and in the first part of First Samuel, there's about 17 or 18 verses there that are about his upbringing, um, a very um, courageous kid, a father who almost forgot about him, a prophet comes to his house, anoints him to be the king, God begins to give him favor, he kills a giant, all of Israel knows who he is, um, he starts to help Saul, Saul gets jealous, and so the second half of 1 Samuel is about David being on the run from the current king. 
And then we get into 2 Samuel, and we see that God has flipped that. Saul is out. David is in. He is now the king of, of Judah and Israel. And he's doing some amazing things. He's a very popular king. Uh, people love him. He's, he's famous. Uh, he's wealthy. And he is a man's man. Okay, and you got to know this context going in. David is a fighter. His reputation is built upon it. He's good with a sword. Uh, there's probably a season of his life where he would rather slap you than talk to you. Um, he's just, he, he's, he's very, very masculine, and he leads the same way. So he's got an entire kingdom that he is shaping the ethos of. He is mobilizing people. He's making choices. And we're going to pick up here in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and take a look at how all this has affected David. So in verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And immediately you have to pause and ask yourself, why? Why is David not at war? Especially a guy who loves it. He, he enjoys it. Again, his reputation is built off of what he's capable of. He's done some amazing things. Their enemies have almost always, he's held them in the palm of his hand. He's, he's very good at it, and the Lord has given him great strategy when it comes to war. And he loves war so much that later on in his life, he asked God, let me build a, a temple for you. Let me, let me take the wealth of our nation, and let me make a temple for you that's reflective of how great we think you are and God re rebukes him and says, no, no, that's not going to happen. you got way too much blood on your hands. Like, you love war, you've killed a lot of folks, and you've done some great things. You've established this, this nation, but you got too much blood going on. But what I will do is honor you and let, let your son do it, okay? And so why would he choose a king who loved war, reputation for it, good at it, has a niche for it? Why would he stay home? All right? And so I want to start by talking to us about this. Don't make decisions when you're not in a good place. All right? Don't make decisions when you're not in a good place. Now, you're going to have to read this later, this afternoon or this week on your own uh, prayer time. But I want to give you a snapshot of what's happened here, of why David has probably stayed home. David is at a place of spiritual and emotional exhaustion. He's tired. He's fatigued emotionally. But he's a man of power. And just because he's tired and wore out and exhausted does not mean that his decisions stop. He has to keep going. So let me recap a little bit so that you understand his mental state. As he's running from Saul at the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 22, David runs into the temple or the tabernacle, and the priests there give him bread and the sword of Goliath, who he killed, as a way of defending himself against Saul and his army. 
but they, they feed him. Saul shows up and says, you fed David? You gave him a sword to defend himself? Well, I'm going to kill all of you. So 85 priests lose their life in one day. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, just a few chapters later, Jonathan, his best friend, has died. This is a relationship that was very deep to him. They, they were like brothers. Jonathan knows I'm not going to be next in line. I know God's hand is on you, so I might as well get behind you and honor that and bless you so that I can be blessed somewhere in the process. It would be foolish for me to come against someone who has this kind of favor on their life. So Jonathan becomes a very, very big friend to him. He's, he's his armor bearer. He keeps him informed. He gives him a lot of insight about conversations that he hears going on about Saul. He warns David. So in some indirect way, he has saved his life multiple times. By this point in 2 Samuel, Saul has tried to kill David nine times. Uh, several of those were done where he tried to pin him to the wall with a javelin while he was playing music. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, David's also having significant problems with his wife and needs to sign up for re-engage. And so Michael, which is Saul's daughter, is his wife. So you can imagine the tension in their home. Fought your dad's trying to kill me. He doesn't like me. There's one thing about us not getting along, but throwing spears at me. Come on, it's a little heavy-handed. 2 Samuel chapter 3 and 4, Abner and Ishbosheth, his devoted friends, have been murdered by Saul's hitmen. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David's bringing the ark back. He thinks he's turned a page in this chapter. But Uzzah puts his hand out, touches the ark, dies. The nation is confused. David is confused. They're so in disarray of what happened that David decides to park the ark at a nearby house while he wraps his mind around it. And the house of David in general is in disorder and chaos. The boy who once protected his flock against a bear and a sheep and the teenager who killed a giant with a slingshot has grown into a broken man with a broken heart surrounded by broken people. And David, who has written hundreds of songs and poems and anthems about the greatness of God, is depressed. And we have all faced some level of of depression. And we know that depression takes the fight out. We've seen and experienced enough life to know that we go, this is not the way I had it in my head. This is not what I wanted marriage to look like or friendships to look like or my career to look like. And now time has caught up with me and I don't even know if I got a second chance at this stuff. And this is not how in my early 20s I imagined it all would play out, but it has. We're depressed about it. And so some here have been depressed by your relationships. Some of you might even say most of your relationships. Some of you have seen a parent or a spouse or even a child pass away way too soon. Some have lost your job, retirement, Nest eggs, 
And now your passion to provide is even in question. Some here have lost yourself to an addiction or a lifestyle that you would have never even 10 years ago put yourself in. And like David, you're in a funk that feels like a street fight. David even says in Psalm chapter 32, he says, My strength was sapped from me like the heat of summer. The word sap there, when you look it up, it, it means this, a gradual process. Meaning this, if, if I could give you some imagery, it'd be like beavers building a, a dam. and It doesn't happen in a minute. It's one log at a time, one consequence, one decision, one thing, one outcome, one circumstance, one thing on top of the next, of the next, of the next. Enough life lived out that suddenly the river no longer flows through it. And this is how David said, my strength just sap, just gradually, like the temperature of the summer just kept rising and rising and rising until now. I don't even want to fight anymore. I want my reputation is built on this stuff. And I loved it at one point in my life, but now I'm just I'm exhausted. I'm depressed. So if I could give you a metaphor to think about, sometimes it feels like, like, like this. It's like somebody who loves the ocean. They love the environment of it. They, they love the, the salty air. They love the feel of, of the water, the sound of, of the waves, the scenery. And so they make an investment to buy a sailboat. Because they love the environment, they're willing to invest. And then they, they take their boat and they go out and they get out in the middle of, of the ocean and there's, there's no wind. So they're in an environment they love, but they're not going anywhere. That's where David's at. I like being king. I like the favor of my life. I like having stuff. I like telling people what to do. I like being in command. I love the way, Lord, that you've let my life play out, but there's no wind in me any longer. It's like, it's like saying, I love who I'm married to, but we're not going anywhere. I love my kids, but I feel like I've just lost traction. I'm in a, a, a career, a field that's exciting. It's got a lot of promise. I've educated myself for it. I've paid my dues for it, but I feel like I'm not going anywhere. You can even be in a church that you love and feel stuck. Feel like you're in an environment you love, but it's just not moving anywhere. This is this is David's heart. I remember one time when Riley was really small, we we had taken a weekend to go preach for a friend in Kentucky at a church there. And the pastor, when I got there the night before, it was a Saturday night, and he says, Hey, let, let's all just go bowling. Let's just have fun. Let's uh, unplug a little bit. And so we did. We we all went bowling. Riley was really small. And so um I, she, she wanted a bowl. I said, well, go pick out a ball. You know, I took her to a section. I had a little small, like four or five-pound balls. And I said, just grab, grab you one. I'll bring it over here. And the whole concept was new to her. She had never been before. And so she was real excited. And, and you, you know the, uh, the ledge there that's kind of like after where the ball comes up, there's a little ledge that kind of takes you out to the main thing. And so she's holding her ball, and it's time for her to do it. And I'm not going to show her anything, you know, because – I'm incredible at bowling, and so I didn't want to, you know, embarrass her. I mean, out of 10 frames, I hit at least half of them. And so I was like, you know, here, I want, you know, go down there and just kind of throw it out there. It's going to hit some pins, and we're all going to get excited. 
She's like, this is awesome. So she takes it out there, and she's holding it with both hands. And I know what she's going to do. She's going to do what we call granny roll. You know, she's going to just kind of launch it out there. And so she goes, and she's got the ball, and she's, it's blocked her vision. She can't see the step. And before Dad can step in, she hits it, holds on to the ball. It's like slow motion. She just falls forward, does not let the ball go. And you know where that goes, chin on the ball, smack. And I heard it, and I was like, oh, God. I'm immediately thinking, what medical facility is right here in Kentucky? And so sure enough, I mean, I heard it, it was solid. She hit square on the ball, it kind of jarred her. She was kind of shocked at what just happened. And immediately she grabs her chin, and blood's coming down her fingers. And I'm like, let me see it. And she's like, No. She's holding on to it, and I said, seriously, I, I, I need to look at it. No. And so I'm trying to, like, look under her hand, and I can see it filleted under there, so I know it's going to take more than a Band-Aid. So we go toward the ER, and the whole time she's holding it, and we get there, and the doctor's like, I, I, need, I need to see it. She's like, no. And I told the doctor, I said, is there any way that we can just glue this? And he's like, oh, no, this thing is going to require stitches. And, th- and then he goes, I'm pretty good at hitting a moving target like that. Supposed to bring me some confidence. And so he's asking her, hey, can I see it? And she's like, no. And so it took three of us to hold her down to get a shot in her to start the process of stitches. And I'll never forget this. I'm holding one arm. A nurse is holding an arm. The doctor's got her chest pushed down. He's got a shot. He's trying to hit a moving target. And I look down at her, and she catches my eyes, and she says, I'm done with you. And my dad heart just kind of broke. I was like, well, I'm not done with you. <laughs> the point there is this. To get the help we need, you got to reveal the wound. You got to take, take your hand off of it. It's, it's almost like even in our, in our adult thinking, somehow we think that if we just pretend it's not there, that it didn't happen. If we just keep our hand over it, it doesn't matter what, what the symptom is. It doesn't matter that we're hurting. It doesn't matter that blood's coming down our fingers. We just look at the world and God and say, no, I'm not going to show this to you. But this is exactly where David is, and it may be where some of you are at right now that you need to take your hands off of it and just show the whole story to God. The whole first, second Samuel saga, unload the whole thing. I'm hurting, I'm, a, I'm, I'm upset, I'm discouraged, I'm depressed, I'm losing sleep, I'm struggling with my relationship with you and other people and my sons and my wife. Everything I've got is falling apart. Sometimes you just got to get your hand off of it and let people see what's going on, especially God. Second thing, don't make decisions when your emotions are leading you. Don't make decisions when your emotions are leading you. David was depressed, David was bored, David was full of lust, and he allowed these emotions to make decisions for him. It's okay to have emotions. God created you with an emotional construct. It's right. It's right to have feelings, but they cannot lead us. We have to keep them in check with the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me take you to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and tell you how this is going to start to to play out. Because of of the length here, I'm going to read some and then paraphrase some. But I'm going to read verses 2 through 5 so that that you see it. So we see where David is. He's he's not gone off, off to war because he's in this terrible place. And then very next verse says, So one evening David got up from his bed. 
He walks around on the roof of his palace, and from the roof he sees a woman bathing, and she's beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. Decision number one. The man comes back and says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he knows she's married. David sent messengers to get her. Decision number two. Then then she came to him and he slept with her. Decision number three. Then she went back home. The woman conceived, sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Consequence of three bad decisions. So he finds himself in a mess. So David, the man who has done all these incredible things, is about to manipulate this situation to death. No pun intended. So he comes up with a plan. All right, let's see. What can I do here? Who's her husband? Uriah. Uriah's a good guy. He's fighting, right? Yep, he's fighting. Let's bring him home. He's been at war, I don't know how long, a couple, couple months. Let's bring him in. He will love a night at home, some time with his wife. And once he spent the night with her, we can blame her pregnancy on him, and I'll deal with the rest of it later. We just need to make sure that nobody finds out about this. So he brings Uriah home, and he gets word that Uriah has come home and will not go in, that he is sitting and sleeping outside on a mat with the servants of his home. And David's like, what's going on? He says, listen, he says this that is, He can't be disloyal to Israel. That all of his brothers in arms are out there sleeping in tents in the field and fighting, and they aren't at home with their wives, surrounded by their stuff, sleeping in their bed. No, no, no. So because of loyalty, he won't do it. David's like, "Mm, this isn't working. Plan B. I'll tell you what. Keep him another night. Bring him over here. I'm going to get him drunk. And then I'm going to send him home, and surely in his drunkenness, he will sleep with his wife. So he does it, brings him home. They're joking, talking war stories, ha, 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 sitting around, nice fire, Cabernet flowing. He sends him home, and he waits for for word, and nothing happens. Same thing. You can't even get the guy so drunk that it numbs his loyalty. So he's like, okay, well, we got to do something here, okay? So let me transition just a moment and then come back to this. All of us are emotional, but emotions cannot be allowed to lead these decisions. And David is supercharged right now with emotion. He's got a lot of fear. He's still depressed. He's discouraged. Now he's full of worry. He's got all these things going on. But Jesus even had emotions and displayed them from time to time. We know that at the tomb... Of Lazarus, he weeps over his friend. He overturns tables in the temple. He's angry, but he doesn't sin. But he's mad about everything that's been set up in in the church. He loves people deeply. He tells them. He communicates. I want to be with you forever. He reveals the heart of the Father to his people. He's talking emotionally. And in Matthew 26, we see a time where he's just 
under duress. Verse 39, let me read this to you. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And it says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, let the cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The key to this prayer is the willingness to drink the cup and face our lives. And David at this point is not willing to do it. And he started this process with just a Dixie cup of bitterness. And now he's graduated to a double-walled Yeti tumbler full of stuff. He is getting the biggest cup to drink that we can imagine. But in Matthew chapter 6, you guys stay with me because I'm going somewhere with this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, I'm paraphrasing. God reminds us not to worry. And he uses an animal to communicate this. He says, listen, if I can take care of the flowers of the field and I can take care of every sparrow, then I can take care of you. And he's communicating this as part of his character, meaning this, no matter what you do, No matter what you've done, I'm the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I will always love you. I will always care for you. And this is the message coming out in Matthew chapter 6. But what's always puzzled me here is why a bird? He could have used specific animals that actually had meaning, like a snow leopard. There's 10,000 of those. I mean, why couldn't he come out and say, I'm going to take care of you like, like the snow leopard, like an almost endangered species. That's how closely I'm watching you. But that's not what he was saying. Maybe an African Javan rhino. There's only 60 of those. Why not that? Why not the hairy-nosed wombat? There's 120 of those. That would have made for an interesting scripture. I'll protect you. Love you like the... Flowers in the field and the hairy-nosed wombat. And our hearts would be full of faith. But no, he chose birds. There's 400 billion birds represented on every continent in the world. This is what I think God is trying to communicate. I think he's saying this, that no matter what trouble you find yourself in, I'm not going anywhere. In other words, if I can care for 400 billion birds, then surely I can care for the crescendo of my creation, which is you. So no matter what decisions you've made, and no matter what consequences you're facing, God still loves you. Is there a consequence? Yes. Are there things that, you know, we, we'd love for God to speak wave his hand over and reverse it. We want an edit. I can imagine at this point, David's wanting to go back in time. He's wanting to go back to where he's supposed to be on a battlefield. He wished he would have stayed indoors on that night. He wished he wouldn't have inquired about, about Bathsheba. He wishes that he wouldn't have sent people to get her. He wished he hadn't slept. He wished she wasn't pregnant. He wished he hadn't tried to get him home and got him drunk, but he did. And you can't make decisions when your emotions are leading you. Third, don't make decisions when you're full of pride. So in verse 14 through 26, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but David says, I tell you what, if you're not going to go into her, I'm going to end your life. 
And he calls in Joab and he says, listen, I want him to go to war tomorrow and not come home. And one version even says that David tells him, I want you to take him into the heat of the battle and then I want you to retreat from him. And you have to think what what this has to happen to make that take place. He's got to get people involved. Now there's Joab leading and other men and maybe people he's close to have now been let in on on the inside thing about, hey, we're going to retreat. Nobody tell Uriah. Now people are involved in, in this murder plot. So now one of the best kings that Israel has ever seen with one of the most phenomenal backstories, so amazing you and I are still talking about it thousands of years later, is now planning a murder. So he tells him, I want to make sure that he doesn't come home. Listen, when you think you're the son and the entire universe revolves around you, you'll make decisions that are so selfish it will destroy you. In chapter 16, verse 18 of Proverbs, David's own son writes this, Pride comes before destruction. One version says, Pride comes before the fall. Anytime I'm so full of myself, my decisions are about me. They're solely about how I feel and what I want and what i got to get my hands on and what i got to have to satisfy the tensions in my own life. And when it becomes all about me, I am destined to destroy myself. So David's worried about God and Bathsheba and his kingship and his reputation. And in one series of decisions, he becomes an adulterer, a manipulator, a liar, a murderer, and a man so broken that if he wasn't wearing the color purple, he wouldn't even know who he was. He's in dire need of an edit. So watch this. I'm going to close in just a second. I want you to read this later. 2 Samuel chapter 12, 1 through 20. Nathan the prophet comes to see him. And if you have never read this, you deserve to go home and read it for yourself. And in that day and time, kings and prophets worked in tandem. They were very, very close for the most part. So Nathan had an open-door policy to come in and talk to David. And you got to imagine they're sitting there talking. And Nathan says, David, I need to talk to you about something. David says, okay, put it on me. And he says, listen, there is a town close by. There's two people. There's a rich guy and a really poor guy. This rich guy, he's got all these sheep and cattle, and he's really got it together. And there's this other guy, and he's got one lamb, a little ewe lamb, and his whole family loves this lamb, and his, his kids love the lamb, and he lets the lamb even drink out of his cup, and at night he puts it in his arms and sleeps with it. This other guy comes into town, David, and he talks to the rich guy, and he's needing a lamb. And instead of taking one lamb from his whole flock, he goes over to the poor guy and grabs the one lamb from him and gives it away. And David, the Bible says, burns with anger. He stands up. He tells Nathan, I'm going to kill that guy. But before I kill him, he's going to pay back four times of what he did to that guy with that one lamb. And Nathan drops the anvil in his lap. This is David. It's you. You could have had anything. You had a whole community of women that would have loved to be your wife. But... 
He took the one thing that somebody else had adored. He broke a family. He murdered the husband. He tried to cover it up. And God is not pleased with you. The story goes on. God curses the pregnancy. The baby dies, but David covers himself in ashes and sackcloth. He's pleading for the life of the baby, for God to have mercy on him. He won't talk to anybody. He's real short with everybody. His servants don't even want to go in because they're afraid they're going to get their head bit off. And then David, at the end, he says it put, puts lotions on him, and he goes to the house of the Lord, and he worships. And so I'm going to end with this. What, what is the editing process, Kevin? How do I... If my world has now become the outcome of my decisions, how do I flip this thing? How do I endure it? How do I drink a bitter cup? What's the editing process for this? Let me give them to you really quick. The first one is this. you got to get off your balcony. Get off your balcony. When you're not in the right place, things will not work for you. And you're adults here, so let me talk to you as such. You know what you're good at. You know what your skill set is. You know what your giftedness is. You're at a phase of your life where you recognize the sweet spot. When you're, when you're doing something that brings you life and benefits the life of other people, you know you're in. So don't, don't leave the battlefield to camp out on a balcony. When you're on the balcony, you will see and experience and decide things that will destroy you. Don't be on the balcony when it's time for the king to go to war. Be on the battlefield. And so if you're on your balcony this morning, get off of it. Talk to God about it. Ask him, how do I get back to the, to the good stuff? How do I get out of this funk that I'm in and get back to where I feel alive in you again? And it's going to be different based upon everyone's experiences and where you are with God. But you need to ask the Lord for it. Give me directions on how to get off the balcony. Second thing, you need to go through the attic of your life and find your slingshot again. David had to get back to a place where he said, I'm willing to be that person. I'm willing to find the me that God destined me for. And, and get his zeal back. Revisit the days of old where he snatched a bear and a lion away from his sheep and where he stood there while all of Israel had their tails tucked. And he said, you're going to talk about God. You're not going to do that in front of me. And he kills him and with his own sword beheads him. That's, that's where he needs to find his sweet spot again. And some of you, because of life, because of its unfairness, you've just tucked all the good stuff away. Now you're just some person standing out on the balcony observing. Third, it's never a bad time to do the right thing. It's never a bad time to do the right thing. Come clean before God. Like my daughter, take your hand off your chin and show the Lord where it hurts. Show the Lord where it all fell apart. Show the Lord where time split for you. Show the Lord the biggest of wounds and let him get in there. But let me end with, with one of the greatest things because I want to leave you with some good news today and then we're going to baptize people. Hear me. If you hear one thing I've said this morning, make it this. 
Your decisions do not void the plan of God for your life. Can they derail you? Can they postpone you? Can they slow down? Yes. But they do not void them out. To give you scripture so that you think it's more than philosophy, Romans 3 and 3, this is what he says. Paul's preaching at Rome, and he's doing this phenomenal job. He's tearing it up. And he comes out with this statement. He says, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's goodness, his faithfulness? It's a rhetorical question, and he's basically saying this. What if some do not believe? Does that mean God does not believe in them? No. So I want you to hear that echo in your heart this morning. I want you to hear that this morning, that you cannot nullify the faithfulness of God. You can't do it. Okay? You just can't do it. He loves you too much. He cares for you too much. So I want you to bow your heads with me this morning.